0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch TechCrunchDailyCrunch.com
3: When Gene Cernan stepped off the moon in 1972, he had no idea that he'd be the last human to do so, much to his consternation.
4: I sort of figured I'd be the last man on the moon in the 20th century.
3: But here I am 43 years later, still the last man on the moon. Give me a break. Meanwhile. The first man to stomp his boots in the lunar dust, Neil Armstrong, together with Gene Cernan and James Lovell Jr., all Apollo astronauts, were just as blunt about their disappointment in the space program when they testified to a Senate committee in 2010.
5: A slide into mediocrity is what the trio called the cancelling of NASA's plan to return to the moon and the transfer of key spaceflight responsibilities to commercial companies.
3: Now expressing himself directly was never a problem for the former test pilot, Captain Cernan, who died in January 2017 at the age of 82. But he couldn't persuade the senators. The government's enthusiasm for manned spaceflight had waned. Government rocket
5: launches from Cape Canaveral were making room for privately funded launches from the Mojave Desert. A 21st century space race was underway and entrepreneurs were at the controls. I'm Molly Bentley.
3: I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, the advent of do it yourself spaceflight. Billionaire investors and maverick aerospace engineers, not to mention teenagers with satellite building kits, are changing how we get ourselves and our equipment into space. And even if not all of us can be astronauts, everyone can hope to get into the space business. That wasn't always so. The author of Hidden Figures on the Brainy Black Women Who Helped Launch the Space Age.
6: I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in fiber XL5, way
5: out in space together. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration came into being with the Soviet launch of the world's first artificial satellite in 1957. Sputnik was the starting pistol for the space
3: race you might say that the private space race had its own Sputnik moment nearly 50 years later with this launch. On that day, Spaceship One became the first privately funded vehicle to reach space, thus validating the design of its visionary engineer.
1: This is Bert Rutan, I'm an airplane and, more recently, spaceship designer and developer.
5: He had designed a ship that would be air-launched from the belly of an airplane over the Mojave Desert. Spaceship One first glided away, then fired its engine and rocketed to an altitude of 100 kilometers, or 62 miles, the beginning of space, thus making its pilot, Mike Melville, the world's first commercial astronaut, before using its jointed wings to pivot into a feathered position and land.
1: What it does is it goes primarily vertical, and it goes out of the atmosphere long enough so that you have about four minutes of zero-g and about five or six minutes of black sky. So it's a very energetic ride, but uh, you have only four minutes to see the the black sky and the atmosphere line, and the view looks very much like from orbit, but it's a very quick experience.
5: Bert Rutan hopes that this experience is one day available to everyone.
3: The event broke NASA's monopoly on the U.S. rocket business, incentivized competing space entrepreneurs, and garnered Bert Rutan and his team the $10 million Ansari X Prize, created by entrepreneur Peter Diamandis.
5: As reporter Julian Guthrie writes in How to Make a Spaceship, with his X Prize incentive, Peter Diamandis took the first step to making the real estate above our heads accessible to everyone.
0: The story starts with this fellow Peter Diamandis, who is the quintessential space geek, and I say that with admiration, who was eight years old and he watches Apollo 11 land in July 1969. He's transfixed and he's determined to get to space, of course, through the astronaut corps because there was no other way to get there. You had to get there through NASA. When he realizes when he's out of school, out of MIT, out of Harvard, that he's not going to get there that way, he dreams up this seemingly crazy idea of launching an incentive prize, a $10 million incentive prize for the first team that can privately build and fly a rocket to the start of space. So we're talking 100 kilometers, 62 miles kind of the as a stepping stone to get to orbit.
3: Okay, l- let me just verify that's where space begins. It's 100 kilometers up, roughly 62 miles, right? I mean, if you get that high, you see you know signs saying, uh, last gas before space begins or something? Exactly.
0: Only the lucky ones see those signs. No, I mean, there's obviously no clear line, demarcation point, but that's the accepted von Kármán line that is the so-called start of space, which uh, is what they set as the requirement for a privately built and flown vehicle that had to reach past the start of space twice within two weeks to prove some element of reusability, which is the holy grail of space flight.
3: I, I want to get back to the motivation for Diamandis uh, starting this prize, though, because you know he came from a Greek immigrant family. His his parents wanted him to become a doctor, You know, my son, the doctor. They, they kind of insisted on that. Uh, but he was so enthralled with these Apollo landings, and then he sees that NASA's kind of getting out of sending people into space and getting out of that business. The Apollo program came to an end in the early 1970s. And so he decides that, well, I'll just do it myself. He adopts this prize
0: approach. Was he inspired by some? predecessor there? He was. You know, it's a fascinating story of taking a page from history for something thoroughly modern. He was reading Charles Lindbergh's The Spirit of St. Louis. Charles Lindbergh, the famed, of course, aviator who flew from New York to Paris in 1927 and made history and, more importantly, galvanized the commercial airline industry. So Peter was reading that. This was in 1993. And he's like, it's an aha moment for him. He's reading it. He's like, wow, I always thought that Lindbergh flew as a stunt, not to win a $25,000 prize. And what happened is it launched kind of the commercial airline industry after Lindbergh was successful, and Peter thought, what if I could do the same thing for private spaceflight? And when Peter thought of this, it was nuts, because it was only the world's three largest governments, the US, China, and the Soviet Union, had been able to send man and machines successfully to space and back. But he thought um, this would be a great incentive model, and they were off and running.
3: I mean, they were off and running, but they, they needed the prize money, didn't they? I mean, he didn't have enough money to...
0: <laughs> Isn't that a funny thing? Yeah. I know he's a very audacious, Peter Diamandis, who is the founder of the X-Prize. This was the founding of the X-Prize. He announces this prize to great fanfare. 20 astronauts on stage with him, including Buzz Aldrin, and this famous aviation designer, Bert Rattan, was with him. He announces the prize, $10 million prize, for the first team that could build and fly this rocket to the start of space. He doesn't have the $10 million, minor detail, but he thought it would be easy to get the money and difficult to get the teams, and it proved to be just the opposite.
3: Okay, he does get the money. Now, Diamandis was motivated, I suppose, largely by his own interest in space and the idea that, you know, if you want to go into space, you have to rely on uh, NASA. If you apply to be a NASA astronaut, the chances are What, 6,000 to one? You're ever going to go into space, maybe worse. So he's going to do this himself. This is do it yourself astronauts I don't know, but building a spacecraft. But he was doing more than just trying to give somebody $10 million for building a rocket. I mean, he was trying to kickstart, if you will, an industry, was exactly.
0: he Exactly. He was. And it's an interesting um, case study in the effectiveness of putting out an incentive prize and drawing in these off-the-grid, outlier, maverick types who don't work for a big corporation, who are scrappy, entrepreneurial, small teams can do big things things, um, that sort of thinking, you know, that's exactly who it attracted into this. These people who didn't believe that the impossible was impossible. These are the folks who were going to try these really unique approaches to creating, you know, a private spaceship. And you have Bert Rutan in the Mojave Desert, and you have all these other people who, who were in the hunt to try to make this happen. Yes, they had this shared dream of getting to space. Um, There was also this goal, just the design engineering challenge, and there were all of these kind of quests that came together to make this happen. And people had different ideas about why they wanted to get to space, but they had a shared desire to get there.
3: Julian, it wasn't all smooth sailing, uh, this development of a rocket that could get up 100 kilometers. I mean, there's, there's an obvious danger element here.
0: Very dangerous, and, you know, during the test flying of Spaceship One, there were anomalies with every single flight, and there were instances where they feared that they would not return to Earth safely. So there were risks. This was very experimental stuff. And then, of course, there was the tragic fatality involving a pilot of Spaceship Two, which the technology again came out of Spaceship One. And it was found to be pilot error where a lot of questions were raised, and it was unknown why the pilot pulled this, what was called the feathering mechanism, way too early, and it resulted in the breaking apart of Spaceship Two. So it was a big tragedy, and I think a lot of soul-searching among Richard Branson and his team at Virgin Galactic, and they... determined to press on because knowing that there is a lot of risk involved but you have to push through it to get to a breakthrough.
3: No risk, no reward.
0: Yeah. Uh, What was,
3: in your mind, the central engineering challenge for doing this? After all, NASA had built rockets before. They'd done it for decades. They knew how to build a rocket that could go to the moon, to Mars. What did these guys have to do? Could they simply adopt the technology uh, originally designed by NASA?
0: No. And interesting because Bert Rutan being, you know, focusing here on Bert, there were other great teams in the mix. There was John Carmack, um, who is today the CTO of Oculus Rift. Um, There were fellows in Argentina and in uh, England and in Canada and in Romania who who were coming up with their own approaches to building the world's first private spaceship. But Bert who succeeded. So he came up with this feathering mechanism, which actually bent the plane in half. And that was to solve the most vexing problem and the problem that had vexed NASA and the military, the military with its X-15, uh, which was re-entering the atmosphere. And he wanted something that would create drag as you re-enter the atmosphere and that would reorient the vehicle naturally without having to pinpoint re-entry as the space shuttle did, as the X-15 did, which was the space plane flown by the military in the 60s. You know, and there was a terrible fatality with that because of the re-entering and the orientation was not as specific as it needed to be, so I think what Bert did is he applied his knowledge of planes to space, came up with this mechanism, the feather that would induce drag and reorient the plane naturally. So he did that on his own.
3: Were the folks who were doing this, and in particular those uh, working with Bert Ratan, a little bit anti-NASA? Did they feel that, you know, the space agency was perhaps too unimaginative or perhaps? too viscous uh, to to actually do this job right? That, you know, there was a big bureaucracy and they could just short circuit all that stuff.
0: Well, interestingly, and this is a great question, because, you know, these people were motivated by the magic that NASA had created. You know, NASA at its best was unparalleled. You know, it did the impossible. And so many of these dreamers were awakened, had their dreams awakened by NASA. And then they found, you know, in the 70s and going into the 80s, that they felt like NASA had let them down, you know, with the space shuttle being over budget and under delivering, and so they wanted to create a private enterprise. So it was this sense of, you know, these small teams doing really big things, an entrepreneurial approach to the next great breakthrough. Now it is this marriage between the small scrappy startups that have become big and the best of NASA. So. It's an interesting journey that we've been on from then to now.
3: Tell me a little bit more about Bert Rutan. What was his background?
0: So Bert is one of the most amazing people I have ever met, and I've interviewed a lot of amazing people. He's a deity in the world of planes, but he was lesser known, I think, to the mainstream audience. So he's this man who started as a boy who just lived airplanes, model planes, and was also this person who... As a child, he would never build a plane from a kit. He always wanted to make a plane that had never been built before, even as a child. So he becomes this uh, designer of kits, where planes that you can actually build in your garage, as scary as that sounds, or as exciting as that sounds. He designed the Voyager, which in 1986 was the first plane to fly nonstop, non-refueled around the world. So he made his claim to fame in that ingenious fellow. So he believed that he could apply his knowledge of aviation to space.
3: Just uh, to get some idea of the scale of this effort, Scaled Composites actually was the name of Rutan's company at this point. How many people, you know, order of magnitude, were working for Scaled Composites? Are are we talking 10, 100, 1,000? How many people?
0: Well, they had um, over 100 people, but that's it. But they they really had about 30 of those working on the spaceship program. And not only did they have to build a spaceship, they had to build the rocket engine, they built a mothership. So the mothership would carry, it was this beautiful plane called the White Knight, and it would carry the rocket to altitude to about 50,000 feet, and then it would drop launch it. So then the motor would be ignited by the pilot, and the pilot would actually hand fly, white knuckle this rocket to the start of space. I mean, it's very, very buck rock. Rogers.
3: Yeah. Well, I, it certainly is notable that uh, you say that uh, Scaled Composites had 100 employees, say 30, working on this project. At the height of the Apollo program, NASA had like 400,000 people working on that. So exactly. Th- this is truly, I mean, it, it sounds comparable to what the Wright brothers did in 1903. It was just a small, very small group of people that revolutionized a technology and set it on its way to become something far bigger. Do you personally look at this as the dawn of, if you will, the private space effort that from here on out, you know, there'll be more and more people who are regarding space as not something just for the government?
0: I do. Absolutely. I think it was an inflection point. And there was a moment when I was writing doing my reporting and my research and then actually writing where I was like, oh my gosh, I was so excited because it was an aha moment for me where I looked at this. There was this one night where Spaceship One had just been introduced to the public. Bert Rutan had had people there and Elon Musk was there and Peter Diamandis, of course, was there. And anyway, and they all met at a bar later that night in Santa Monica and it's a story I tell. And it was a turning point. It was a point where the access to space began to move away from the governmental hands and into private citizens.
3: Julian Guthrie, thanks so very much for talking with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
5: Julian Guthrie is a journalist, and she is the author of How to Make a Spaceship, A Band of Renegades, An Epic Race, and the Birth of Private (laughs) Spaceflight. Well, later in the show, Margot Lee Shetterly, author of Hidden Figures, but first, a former NASA official on how you can launch your own satellite.
3: We're blasting off with DIY spaceflight on Big Picture Science.
2: A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The effort by privately funded companies to build vehicles that will make space available to everyone has encouraged a flurry of startups and entrepreneurs eager to invest in a new off-earth economy and put their wares on display.
6: So welcome, Big Picture Science, to Spacecom Expo in Houston, Texas.
3: When our reporter Emma Bentley set foot in the massive exhibit hall for the 2016 Spacecom Expo, she could see firsthand how private companies are getting into the space business. Now, it's still early days for the new economy, but Emma gives us a sampling of space-related innovation that she found particularly intriguing, beginning with a company that wants to provide short-notice Uber-like launch services from just about any airport using rockets released from aircraft.
6: Okay, so I'm talking to Eddie Allison, who's Head of Aviation Services at Orbital Access, based out of Prestwick.
3: Based out of
1: Prestwick, yeah.
6: Wow, in Scotland. The launch services for small payload using aeroplane-type spaceports seems to be a big coming thing isn't it?
1: Yeah we believe so. Um, The difference with ours is we intend to operate a fleet of such aircraft and without being glib we're considering the uber model basically where you know our aircraft will be around the world doing different tasks and we'll be able to respond very quickly to a wide range of small satellite requirements. For example if someone's reusable body comes back into the atmosphere but can't land at the primary location because of weather or technical issues and ends up somewhere else then we can go and recover that for them and bring it back.
7: Hi, I'm Sean League, uh, co-founder of SpaceFab.us. I'm showing off our space telescope uh, prototype and uh, eventually leading to space mining and manufacturing.
6: You know, we are running out of easily mined resources on this planet, so what sort of minerals and metals do you expect to find in asteroids?
7: Uh, Our business in in particular is going after just simple iron nickel. You know, it's a great building material in space, but there's plenty of other ores like uh, iridium, uh, platinum. Anything you want that's on Earth is also in space, plus other things that aren't on, on Earth.
6: How are you actually going to mine? What's the the technology that you use to put on the asteroid to mine it and to process those minerals? Okay, a, a little
7: bit of that's propri- proprietary, you know? But, <laughs> oh, I'm uh, so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> or, I, or, you know, some of it's are RIP, but in basic, because it's a metallic asteroid, we can actually attach to it with uh, electromagnets. And then we will take the asteroid material grind it up into a powder and melt it down and then when it freezes out we can differentiate the different types of metal. Uh, Then we will laser 3D print whatever you need in orbit or in space. So
6: you can make a little army of drillers made out of metal to continue to go on to new asteroids, do you think? Or yeah, is that, that a that's, little bit far-fetched?
7: Yeah, that, that's the plan. I mean, there are some things that we won't be able to manufacture, like you know, complex circuitry, that kind of thing. We'll have to bring up that stuff in, from, from Earth. Um, but for the most part, if you, know, if you want a, a shell for a space station or a, a spacecraft, you, we could build that in orbit. We'll have uh, armatures that actually 3D print on the fly, and they can make as big of an apparatus as you need.
6: That is absolutely amazing, and I wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank right. you so Thank much you for talking much. to us. Thank you. <laughs> oh, Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm with Professor uh, Shabata mm-hmm. from the Japan's National Institute for Advanced Industrial Science and Technology. Yes. And what do you, have you brought to the show? Yes, so I brought a seal type robot. He's absolutely, or they are absolutely beautiful. They're Thank all you. soft and cuddly and wonderful. Yes. How do you foresee Paro's role in um, sort of humans off Earth and humans in space?
4: Yes, paro can be used as like animal therapy, and uh, so paro can improve depression, anxiety, pain, sleep.
8: So especially in the case of space mission to Mars, it takes about half a year to get to Mars. So they may feel a lot of stress.
6: So to whom am I speaking? John Gruner. And you are part of NASA.
1: Yes, I work in the Astro Materials Division at the Johnson Space Center.
6: And now, here we have a table full of really exciting things, one of which is an LED lit up box with plants growing inside of it. And there's a sort of ladder effect on the table and a box of Martian soil.
1: Well, I wish it was Martian (laughs) soil, but it's just a similar. It actually comes from Hawaii, but it's, it's weathered basalt volcanic ash, very similar to what's in many places on Mars.
6: Overhearing you talk to other people here, what I thought was absolutely astonishing to me was that we can grow our Earth plants in the soil from other planets.
1: Sure, sure, it's all about nutrient delivery. Uh, Plants need about 17 nutrients, those chemical elements, to grow, and then we have the macronutrients that where plants need those in large amounts, and the micronutrients where plants need those in small amounts, right? and all of those happen to be in the soils on uh, the moon or Mars.
6: You've already planted seeds in the uh, Martian soil, and they've grown into plants already over the last few months.
1: Right, yeah, so that's that's the beauty of uh, some vegetable crops. You know, the leafy things like lettuce and spinach kale, they grow relatively quickly so in a matter of weeks, you're eating uh, some of those other crops like carrots, uh, potatoes, wheat, you know, we're going to need grain, so wheat now we're talking more like 50 60, maybe up to 80, 90 days so it will take a while but very uh, highly fruit and vegetables, so you know grow up liking your fruits and vegetables because if you want to go live on a planet, you're going to be eating a lot of those and not so much meat the meat will probably be freeze dried because the idea is we want to try to grow everything we can to provide the best balanced diet that we can. And then we can rely on the earth less.
6: So thank you so much you for bet. your time. Yeah, yeah, this thank is you.
5: Emma Bentley reporting from Spacecom Expo 2016 in
3: Houston, Texas. You know, what strikes me is that the space business is not yet a mature industry, but it's certainly entering adolescence because you've got now something you didn't have a few years ago, support industries.
5: Right. You have food. You could mine asteroids for the minerals you need. All of these new businesses trying to catch up with this space economy that's just evolving.
3: And the meat will be freeze-dried. But what I really liked was that robot seal to keep you, I don't know, feeling okay on a long space journey. Billionaires and entrepreneurial startups have all the space toys for now, including the robot SEALs, but they haven't cornered the market on the fun. Your feet are firmly on terra firma now, but you can enter the final
5: frontier by proxy thanks to engineers who are thinking big by designing small.
3: Miniature satellites known as CubeSats are at the nexus of NASA and private industry partnerships, and they include you among their customers, says former NASA Center Director Pete Warden.
4: Well, the original CubeSats 25 years ago really couldn't do very much. They were an educational tool to show students how to put spacecraft together. But then people started to say, well, you know, I can put scientific instruments on this. And as the miniaturization of components continues, I can do other things that big satellites can do to the point where today a CubeSat can do just about everything a, a big sat can do
3: but people are still building big satellites. I mean, there's got to be some advantage. Is that just a power requirement or, you know, bigger cameras or? Well,
4: it's quite an argument today in the space community. Uh, Do you need to build big satellites? Of course, there are some things that if you need a very large optical system, uh, the argument is that uh, that optical systems telescopes are heavy. And uh, uh, if you want one that's the size of the Hubble Space Telescope, it's going to be heavy. Now, I don't buy that. Uh, I think uh, with new technology, we can build much smaller things.
7: I
3: guess the deal is that one big advantage of a CubeSat, other than perhaps the fact that you can build it yourself on your lab bench at a university or maybe even at home, is that uh, you don't have this enormous launch cost if it doesn't weigh very much. I mean, to send something into space, I think, is roughly $10,000 a pound or something like that. So you can send a CubeSat up for a couple of tens of thousands of dollars, which would be a lot for me personally, but, you know, not so much in in the world of space.
4: Well, there's several big advantages. Of course, launch is a huge one. Uh, It costs a lot to put things in space, although it's getting cheaper. Uh, But the other one, of course, is that it costs a lot less to build it, and you can do it much more quickly. Uh, One of the real advantages of CubeSats, through a number of reasons, they can be launched frequently. They can be piggybacked on other payloads. They can also be cheap, is you can iterate very quickly. This is a key thing of science, is that you want to get a result, get a new result six months later, another one. But it's also a key thing of entrepreneurship. If you can get a product out and then make it better six months from now and so on, you get inside your competitor's decision act cycle. Who's building these things? CubeSats have really become a, a big industry, and uh, I know of at least 20 or 30 You know, some of them aren't so startup anymore. They're pretty big companies, uh, 500 to 1,000 people. So it's really everybody. Universities do it. Elementary school students have built them. You can buy kits, can build them at home. It's a really exciting thing that, I mean, of course, they're really ideal for the standard three kids in a garage doing a startup.
3: And to get them launched, if somebody's launching a telecommunications satellite costing $100 million or something down at the Cape, Can I find a little extra room in the nose of that rocket and put my CubeSat in there
4: and have them send me a bill? In a manner of speaking, yes. You can find somebody to launch your CubeSat. There are a number of companies. that uh, are in business to help you find these uh, these launch opportunities. Some of them are, you know, in big communication satellites, uh, you know, kind of in the checked luggage. But others are in the checked luggage of the astronauts going to the International Space Station. Uh, there's a company called NanoRacks, for example, that you can go make a negotiation with, and in short order you can get your satellite thrown out of the International Space Station and launched into orbit.
3: Okay, and uh, you say the price is coming down, so this might eventually get into the area of hobbyism?
4: Precisely. And I think it's, it's sort of interesting to me that, you know, even $10,000, uh, okay, that's a lot of money, but, you know, people blow that much on ocean voyages. Uh, I'd rather build a CubeSat, uh, frankly.
3: Uh, well, tell me why. Because, you know, what we haven't discussed here is exactly what sort of thing you
4: could build into a CubeSat that would, you know, be worth the effort. There's a number of really exciting applications. Of course, the most exciting one to me is you can observe the Earth. You can build a CubeSat that uh, has a telescope in a small telescope that's uh, a few inches in diameter, and you can look at the Earth and get resolutions of, you know, a few feet. This is an exciting thing. So now you and I could go out and build a spy satellite if if we want to do something, but we also make money on this. We can sell information to uh, farmers if they want to know what's going on in the crop and so forth. So the very first exciting thing is just doing observations of the Earth That used to be the province of governments alone.
3: Well, an obvious concern uh, to me or maybe to nations in general would be uh, if you can build one of these things in your backyard, if a high school kid can build a spy satellite, does that threaten security in some sense? Either my personal security or national security?
4: Well, of course, one of the considerations of any new technology is: does it infringe upon the rights of governments or the prerogatives that governments assume for themselves? The answer is yes. Things that it used to be that it took you know ten thousand people organizations and build billion dollar spy satellites can now be done by the three kids in the garage. Uh, but that's a fact of life. It's the same thing as the small little you know UAVs, the quadcopters that fly around. Uh, they are now present a challenge, a challenge to regulation, a challenge to authority. You know, one of the most uh, interesting things, though, is CubeSats are beginning to leave Earth orbit to allow exploration of the inner solar system, and that's I think that's the next big step.
3: In other words, having CubeSats do uh, astronomy or even space science, that's already being done?
4: Uh, I- exactly. There's a number of CubeSats that people are looking at and even building that would observe a particular star, looking for things like uh, a planet transiting in front of the star. There are other uh, projects going on, and I think there'll be a lot more soon, to go and and fly by asteroids. There's a growing industry in thinking about mining asteroids in the future, and CubeSats will play a big role in that. It's the democratization of space, in my opinion. Anybody can go to Earth orbit now, so that the three kids in a garage can send something to the moon or to the moons of Mars. Uh,
3: In order for the CubeSat to be really interesting, you have to get data back from it. And can you build a transmitter into a box four inches on the side that's powerful enough for somebody to get the data back? And how do I get the data back as a, as a hobbyist? I mean, I don't have a huge antenna in my backyard.
4: Well, basically, a smartphone can broadcast for a couple hundred kilometers in a clear line of sight. And using a relatively small dish, sort of like your, your dish antenna, on the house, you can receive a, a pretty good signal from low-Earth orbit.
3: Well, finally, Pete. You know, one thing that I find myself bemoaning all the time is that my hobbies are all sort of passe. Uh, <laughs> that you know, if you look at the amateur radio, just building things in general, it seems that the younger generation is not building things. They write software, but not necessarily building. Anything. They're they're worried about that next app. Do you see a future in which uh, CubeSats become the rage and everybody's putting their own uh, box into space? I mean, is it, is this really going to happen?
4: Well, absolutely. I think that there's a revolution taking place uh, in what you can do at home and. You couple this CubeSat technology with 3D printers, home 3D printers. Uh, There's already been people that have printed most of the components of CubeSats. So I see this as where hardware now becomes like software, that I can do my little software model and then, you know, 20 minutes later I print out a CubeSat.
3: Pete Warden, thank you so very much for speaking with
4: us. Thank you.
5: Pete Warden is the former director of NASA Ames Research Center and the chairman of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. While space may be opening up, but as recently as World War II, the National Aerospace Agency was not welcoming to all candidates, no matter how qualified they were. And not just African Americans, but
8: Mexicans, Jews, many other minorities in the country were barred from taking these very good, lucrative civil service and defense industry jobs.
5: Coming up, the bill signed by President Franklin Roosevelt desegregated the defense industry, allowing talented black female scientists to contribute to the war effort, and then ultimately, to help put a man on the moon. The author of Hidden Figures, next.
3: It's DIY Space Flight on Big Picture Science. The thrill of flying weightless while looking back at the Earth is, for now, limited to those willing to write a $200,000 check. But we've heard
5: optimistic speculation that one day access to space will be open to all.
3: But entry into the space business has also had to progress. It's not always been equal access, even for those who are qualified. During the era of Jim Crow segregation, the majority of the nation's aerospace engineers and mathematicians were male and white. Yet,
5: not all. Before John Glenn orbited Earth, a group of brainy black female mathematicians known as human computers calculated by hand The trajectories that helped make his historic flight possible, says Margot Lee Shetterly, the author of Hidden Figures, a history of these women's contributions that, until now, have generally gone
3: unrecognized. The black women at Langley Research Center in Virginia were motivated to respond, as were most Americans, to the sudden appearance of Sputnik in orbit. Many imagined that the Soviets were using the satellite to spy on Americans, or worse, Americans were
8: terrified
3: that the Russians would be able
8: to use this Sputnik to deliver a nuclear bomb to the United
5: States of America. And so the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, formed during World War I, became NASA. And the space race was
3: on. The black female mathematicians whose brilliant work was valued by NASA Langley and was ultimately key to putting a man on the moon were simultaneously marginalized by persistent segregation.
5: But their story begins more than a decade before the starting gun of the space race when during World War II, with so many white men serving overseas and the defense industry in dire need of talented engineers and mathematicians, President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8802 and opened up the federal government
3: defense jobs to all. He stated that the democratic way of life within the nation can be defended successfully only with the help and support of all groups.
8: It was a confluence of this executive order banning discrimination and a skyrocketing need for aeronautical research. Airplanes were becoming a decisive factor in World War II, in Europe, and in the Pacific. And this laboratory there in Hampton was working around the clock to refine and improve America's aircraft.
5: And so what the NACA needed and what they drew upon were the the gifts of these women. And they were gifted in math. And as you write, what they really needed was raw computing power. In fact, the women were called human computers.
8: They were. And it's really funny because this title human computer is really a recent invention to distinguish the work that people did as computers or calculators or you know ma- mathematicians from the electronic computers. Back then, a computer was simply a job title for somebody who spent their day calculating
5: numbers like these women did. Well, what was being required of these women and the other engineers and the human computers was pretty complicated stuff back then. It's hard to get our minds around doing all of this by hand, because indeed, we have computers today. What kind of computation and mathematics did these women do? Right. It, it is
8: amazing. We, we have to remember these women were, generally speaking, in a room together, a computing pool. They had a mechanical calculator that took up the better part of the desk. They had a pencil and paper. They had a slide rule. And with all of this stuff, they calculated and processed the same way an Excel spreadsheet might process a huge set of numbers, and these numbers were coming from wind tunnel testings of airplanes. They were coming from airplanes that had been outfitted with instruments that were designed to capture all kinds of characteristics about the flight of an airplane. All of that raw data made its way to the desks of these women. So that that's the kind of work that they were doing. Everything that they did in those early days was on airplanes. It was focused on making airplanes more efficient. Of course, one of the big achievements of NASA in 1947 was breaking through the sound barrier. Chuck Yeager is a name that many people may remember. Um, He was the pilot who first did that. But a lot of the groundwork, literally the groundwork, these people were on the ground doing these calculations, was done by women.
5: And the women that you write about, the black female computers, were in a segregated building called the West Computing. How many women were there, and were they doing the same work of their white colleagues in the East Area Computing Building that was across Langley? Yes,
8: yeah, so the the black women were actually in a segregated office. They weren't in a, a full segregated building. And yes, it's true, they were doing the same kinds of work as their white female counterparts. And they did interact with the engineers, the engineers got to know them, but of course they were, this, these were the days of Jim Crow segregation. The women were not only in that office, all black women in one office, but they were also required to use a colored bathroom and they sat at a colored table in the lunchroom cafeteria. But they really had the long view and realized that this was the kind of work that matched the talents that they had. And this was the kind of job that would allow them to change their circumstances and the circumstances of their children and their grandchildren.
5: Well, Margot, to what degree did the threat posed by Sputnik prompt white people to ignore their own racial prejudice, uh, at least temporarily, at least within the confines of NASA Langley, in order to focus on the urgent task at hand that required everyone's cooperation, and that was putting a man into space. I do think there's an aspect of that. You know, it was true in World War II. It was
8: true during the space race. There was a huge task before the country, you know, not just individuals, but as a country, we said that these are things that we want to achieve. And we had to get everyone on board. You know, you could not afford to overlook talent because we couldn't afford to fall short of the goal. So I think that in those kinds of circumstances, it is more likely that the smart girl, as one of the lines that John Glenn says in the movie, he says, you know, I want the smart girl to do the work. And I thought that was a, a really well done moment in the film because that's who Katherine Johnson was. She was the smart girl, not the black mathematician or the female mathematician, but the right mathematician for that particular job. I think in those circumstances, it is much more likely that a black woman or a woman of any background, you know, who is facing barriers because of her race or gender will find herself in a circumstance where where those talents can be put to use. But it's also certainly true that, you know, those women, even in those times where the talent was demanded, they still really had to work very hard to ensure that the people they worked with could recognize the talent and then put it to work. That always took a lot of work, and it took a lot of chutzpah to to stand up to the boss and to say, listen, I am the right person for the job, and I want you to
5: put me to work in this fashion. Well, the smart woman, as you said, the smart girl, Katherine Johnson, started in the pool of women who were performing mathematical calculations and then she was asked to help with the all-male flight research team because of her extraordinary knowledge of analytic geometry. What was it that she was able to do and why did they need her talents as they faced the task of putting a man into orbit?
8: So, yes, as you say, Katherine Johnson started out working in the segregated West Area computing pool. Well, what happened is this flight research division borrowed Katherine Johnson. And as she said, they forgot to return her to the pool. They enjoyed working with her and appreciated her talents and wanted to make her a permanent member of the team, which they did. So this particular group was the one that then became very, very closely associated with the space program. So when the space program happened and this flight research group then started working on spacecraft, Katherine Johnson, as she says, just came right along with the program. And that understanding of analytic geometry and um, really the math to translate these uh, theoretical, geometrical concepts into something that is real, you know? So not just an ellipse on paper, but an elliptical
5: orbit of a satellite going around the Earth. So Katherine Johnson is working with the flight research team. And she's really good with numbers and with analytic geometry. And it's now 1962. And NASA wants to send a man into orbit. Now, that man would be John Glenn, the member of the first group of astronauts of Mercury 7. And Katherine Johnson is part of that team. And she had already calculated the trajectory for Alan Shepard, right, prior to that? That's
8: correct. You know, essentially what Katherine Johnson had to do, and just to sort of give a little bit more background, um, so the flights of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, who were the first two American astronauts to go into space, essentially they were launched atop a rocket down in Florida. And the rocket went up, the capsule went up, and it came back down in a parabola called a ballistic flight, sort of like a bullet or like a a tennis ball that's shot out of a tennis ball machine. It goes up and it comes right back down, and it came right back down off the coast of the United States. The orbital flight would require sending the astronaut off into space, having him orbit the Earth completely, and then come back down off the coast of the United States where he could be scooped up out of the ocean by the military and carried to safety. So Katherine Johnson, what her task was, was to say, okay, this is where we want the guy to land. Let's work backwards, work the equations backwards from there so we understand how and where to shoot him off into space. So you can imagine the pressure on her and the people that she
5: worked with to get this right. And. At that time, the IBM computer was also doing calculations. But John Glenn actually asked specifically for Katherine Johnson to check the numbers by hand. Why didn't he trust the computer? Well, you know, that's a great question. The thing about it is we are so reliant on computers.
8: And computers are so ubiquitous in our lives today. We never question, really. If they're wrong, we take the, you know, whatever it is they tell us for granted. Um, Back then, these were the early days of electronic computers. So this moment when the U.S. is trying to overtake the Soviet Union in the space race is also a moment of handoff between computing as a human profession and computing as an electronic device. What Glenn asked for was for Katherine Johnson to hand check that same set of equations so that every number that went into equation that had been programmed to the computer, Katherine Johnson would then use her pencil and her paper and her desktop mechanical calculator to do the same thing in order to compare the output. And if those two things showed very good agreement, that was the actual phrase from her her research report. then. Glenn would feel comfortable enough to say, listen, I trust the computer's output and I'm ready to go. So this was a it was an example of the this sort of schizophrenic work environment that these women had to deal with. On the one hand, they are doing this very high level interesting work that has not just national but international consequence. On the other hand, they are still required to find the colored bathroom and sit at the colored cafeteria at
5: work because of the color of their skin. But that didn't mean that these women always accepted the situation and the segregation. And you write about, this was not in the film, but in the book, you write about the cafeteria. And the cafeteria is segregated in the West Computing Building. And a sign reads, uh, colored computers. And a woman named Miriam Mann made it her goal to pull down that sign every time she saw it. And would keep going back up. And she'd pull it down, and it'd go back up. And then one day, it, it never went back up. And I wonder if there were a series of small little victories like that um, that the women participated in that also, I don't know, in some ways led to breaking down some of the racial barriers or maybe they were just symbolic only to the women.
8: You know, I really think that this story is about the value of those kinds of small victories and, and the courage that it takes to go into a segregated workplace every day and know that you have to go to the colored bathroom. But at the same time, you're going to give your best to these th- this mathematical work that's before you. And I think that these women came into these jobs really with two missions. One was to serve their country as mathematicians, professional mathematicians. And the other job was to really ensure that they expanded what was possible for for themselves, for for black women, you know, more broadly for all women, and increase the expectations of everyone, the people that they worked with, society at large, for what was possible for black women. So I think that, you know, they really did see this as a double mission, as of really Taking the spirit of what we think of as the civil rights movement, but, you know, we always see as, you know, Martin Luther King and these people in these very important public protests and public actions, that behind the scenes, these women were doing all that they could in their jobs to carry out really the same thing. Margot Lee Shetterly, thank you so much for speaking with us. Ollie, thank you so much for having me on.
3: Margot Lee Shetterly is the author of Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. And, you know, this story kind of resonated with me because I was in Virginia, living in Virginia at the time this was going on, and uh, it was segregated. My high school was segregated. There were thousands and thousands of students there, and not a single one of them was an African-American face.
5: Were you aware of what was happening at at Langley? I, I mean, just the work that was going into putting men into orbit? No.
3: No, no. Listen, I was in high school. I, I was a member of the Rocket Society and I didn't know that. But what strikes me about this show is that it shows that what was predicted 20, 30 years ago that the development of space would parallel the development of aviation beginning with pioneers and, and government efforts and eventually leading to the entrance of private enterprise to make it accessible to everyone is is happening. It was said that if the airlines were dependent on the government as they had been, it would cost you $500 million to buy a flight across the country. And taking that to its logical conclusion, the day is not terribly far away when taking a rocket is very little different from taking an airplane.
5: Thanks to the people who are resolutely independent while helping us produce this show: senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, reporter Emma Bentley, and intern Sarah McQuaid.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization. Who scientists study the origin and nature of life, including investigating the geologic history of Mars? And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to
5: DIY spaceflight. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive
3: at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over the air radio because there's no internet in space, Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, we'll consider letting them know you like the show.
5: There's no Internet in space for now. That could be the next big frontier. And if you like listening to our show and you do so via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review on our iTunes page, and you can reach us directly with your comments. Just throw in some faint praise and email it all to BigPictureScience at SETI.org.